Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. We're uh, in a series on David, a man after God's own heart. And today we're going to talk about the king thing. And the king thing was uh, a very interesting moment in the history of redemption. A lot more here than meets the eye, and I pray the Holy Spirit will enable us to see clearly what doesn't necessarily meet the eye on the surface. And so, we will look at the entirety of chapter 8. Please now give attention to the reading of God's Word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Boy, that's what you want to hear. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Hmm. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for you yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous truth from your word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired it would work among us in a very specific and powerful way and that we will be sure in every way to give you, the only one worthy, all the glory. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Samuel is really the last of the judges over Israel. You remember the book of Judges. We talked about that last week. And the story of the judges is told in a series of repeating cycles. Sin is followed by judgment. Judgment is followed by repentance. Repentance is followed by deliverance. And deliverance is followed by a period of peace. God raises up, as the people cry out, a judge to deliver his people and to rule over them with a measure of peace. The judge would lead for, uh, or judge Israel, bringing peace throughout his lifetime. But when the judge died, the people return every time to their sin of forsaking the Lord and worshiping other gods. And so the cycle begins again. The book of Judges outlines this pattern in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And this then becomes the framework of the rest of the narrative. The story of 1 Samuel 4, chapter 4 through 7 fits the pattern of the book of Judges. Sin leads to judgment, chapters 4 through 6. Then the people repent. And so God raises up Samuel as a judge. Samuel, we are told in, told in chapter 7, was serving as a leader of Israel at Mizpah. The word leader is also translated judge in the book of Judges. Samuel the judge then delivers Israel, and as a result, they enjoy peace throughout his lifetime. Then Samuel continued to judge over Israel all the days of his life. But in chapter 8, verse 1, we have a break in the story and a break in the pattern. Samuel moves to a hereditary route and appoints his own sons as judges. The only time previously that a son of a judge set himself up in the le as a leader ended in disaster. Abimelech, Gideon's bastard son, had himself appointed king and it led to a civil war. Yet now Samuel himself is responsible for appointing his sons. Now you have to know something. Between chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, probably 30 years has passed. And now Samuel is not that young warlord and prophet leading Israel. He is an old man. And his sons, who were also appointed responsibilities in the kingdom, were just really corrupt and had no integrity. They took bribes. They perverted justice. And so the people decided, we want no more of this. An unspecified period of time has passed. Samuel was an adult, 
at the Battle of Ebenezer in chapter uh, 7, he led the people to a great victory, but by the time the elders came to him at Ramah, he had full-grown sons and he had become old. This suggests at least maybe 30 years has passed. And the writer of 1 Samuel has ignored that entire time period and has placed chapter 8 right after chapter 7. Several reasons for this are apparent. First, the sequence of chapters 7 and 8 set off the irony of the request that the elders made. They wanted a king to fight their battles. But if the battle of Ebenezer in chapter 7 taught them anything at all, it taught them that they already had a king, Samuel, to fight their battles. Second, the literary context also emphasizes the contrast of Samuel and his sons. Samuel's circuit court is described and his administration of justice, as the people later acknowledge, was above reproach. He was a faithful, godly man and a judge. And so Samuel's sons also became judges, but they took bribes and bent justice in direct violation of the Torah. Samuel was responsible for putting his sons in office, and the Torah explicitly says that bribery um, um, was a heinous sin. Uh, those appointed to office must reject bribery. When Moses set up the judges and elders in Israel, he selected men who were free from the love of money which is also a qualification for an elder now in the New Covenant. Um, so Samuel must bear some responsibility for this situation of his sons. He's often compared to Moses in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, but he failed to imitate Moses' care in selecting rulers and successors. The text issues a very sharp warning to Christian leaders. Even leaders who are not Eli's but are faithful Samuel's may see their work undone by dishonest sons. I think it is that the ministry calls for such a demand upon fathers of sons that oftentimes they get lost in the shuffle as it's so easy for a minister to allow himself to become consumed by the approval of people and consumed by the idols of his own heart. I call them ministry idols where you want to be successful, you want to be effective, and maybe even some of your goals are commendable and just and right, but you, in pursuit of them, overlook your first ministry context, which is your home. Fathers, are you investing yourself in the life of your family? Are you investing yourself in the life of your children? Do they know you? Do they know what you believe and what you stand for? Or are you sidestepping them in your career path in order to have a trajectory that will ultimately, you know, glorify you? Samuel failed when it came to his sons. As good as he was at everything else, he failed there. And the wickedness of his sons provided the pretext for Israel to request a king. Samuel immediately saw that the request was an evil thing. But if you read your Bible, you will know that the Bible never condemns monarchy per se. 
Yahweh had planned for Israel to have a king from the time of the patriarchs and Moses. Genesis 49, 8 through 12, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, clearly teach the coming of a king as we know the end of the story or approaching the end of the story. We know everything is about the kingdom of God and King Jesus. So it wasn't that it was inappropriate to have a king. Well, what was wrong with Israel's request? As the context makes incredibly clear, the people were rejecting Yahweh as king by asking for a human king. How do we know that? Further, the people rejected Samuel. He had been judging them, but now they wanted a king to judge them. And they were asking for a king, but Samuel was the one who had been asked for and received. Perhaps most crucially, they asked for a king, notice this little phrase, you'll see it more than once, after the nations. What are they asking for? What kind of king do they want? Have they opened the Torah, gone to Deuteronomy chapter 17, read what God had to say about kings and the kind of people they were to be, or were they more influenced by looking around at the nations around them that they did not drive out during the uh, uh, go, going into the promised land and the taking of Canaan for themselves? They left pockets of pagans around, and so were they looking around at the kings around them and saying, we need a king like that. We've got a better idea. We're smarter than you are, God. Give us kings like the nations around us. Now, that may not sound that bad, but when you get to thinking about it with any kind of depth, you'll see that that was incredibly offensive. Here's the whole point. They wanted a king like the nations. Israel's request for a king was another example of the unfaithfulness that had been evident throughout the period of the judges. They were forsaking the fountain of living water and turning to cisterns that hold no water, according to the Jeremiah passage. In other words, they were falling into the gross sin of idolatry. Ever since they entered the land, Israel had rejected Yahweh in favor of Baal and Ashtaroth. And the desire for a king was just another idolatrous obsession. By the way, King Baal had to do with fertility, so that would be looking to a particular God to bless your life financially and uh, make your life whole. And so the whole idea of fertility, of rain coming, the crops growing, so they were looking and worshiping Baal like their pagan neighbors. And then Ashtaroth was the same. I think Ashtaroth even involved in certain cases child sacrifice, oddly enough. And this is what they were doing. And the desire for the king was just another idolatrous obsession. And the Lord threatened to respond as he had during the period of the judges. When Israel went after other gods, Yahweh sent a nation to oppress them until they came to their senses and repented. When they sought to imitate the nations by rejecting a king, the Lord warned that the king would oppress them as Gentile kings had, and instead of delivering from their enemies, the king would become an enemy himself. And that is precisely what happens during Saul's administration as king, the first king of Israel. So, in rejecting the Lord in favor of the idolatry of political prestige and power, Israel was doing something else that was incredibly serious. They were rejecting their covenant status. 
in the royal ideology of kings, there was a healthy tension that had to exist in a king that God would approve over Israel. That king had to be one worthy of the office, a lawkeeper, one who pursued a man after God's own heart, but he also had to keep in tension covenant and covenantal ethics. All of that came together to form the office of kingship. They had to be faithful to the covenant of Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, and they had to operate on that level as a theocratic nation. But as a result of their sinfulness, they totally lost that, and in doing so, they lost their identity as the people of God. They were supposed to be a holy people, a people set apart, a people belonging to God, not just morally pure, but a people that are different, a different culture, a different group. Do you find yourself as a believer right now living in tension with the world cultural uh, system and zeitgeist around you in this world that is very anti-Christian, very anti-Bible, very anti-Christ-hating, as it were? Do you find that as a real tension for you? Because you've been set apart for another reason. We're not supposed to ape the world. We're not supposed to take our directions from the culture and the customs of the world. Rather, we're to take our directions from our sovereign Lord. But here is our fundamental problem, and we all have it. What is it? We're idolaters. Every one of us. We're idolaters, and I'm not excluding myself from that. I'm one of the biggest idolaters I know. And if you don't see yourself that way, you need some help. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about an idol. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by Jesus alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, my attention, my resources, and my money. That's idolatry. That's a pretty good definition of idolatry. And so we need to learn how to think about idolatry and the motivations behind idolatry. But the sin underneath every sin that we commit is idolatry. Uh, think of the Ten Commandments, which begin with two commandments in opposition against idolatry. Then comes commandments three through ten. Why this order? It is because the fundamental problem is always idolatry. In other words, we never break commandments 3 through 10 without first breaking commandments 1 and 2. It is always relational breaking before it's rule breaking. And idolatry is such an insipid sin, it's so hard to detect. You can see it in other people, but it's harder to see it in yourself. And so we have to understand that our idols express themselves as motivational drives. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. All sorts of things are potential idols. An idol can be a physical object. It can be a person. It can be an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. If this is so, how do we determine when something is an idol in our hearts? 
You see, idols aren't just wood and stone that pagans buy down to, bow down to. The Bible redefines the whole concept of idolatry to deal with the motivations of our heart. And Israel's motives for wanting a king were rebellious. They were sinful in every way. That request, the way they said it, and the motives driving them were sinful. As soon as my loyalty to anything else leads me to disobey God, I am in danger of making something an idol. And an idol doesn't have to be an evil thing. It can be something that is very good. But we want it too much in a way that's disconnected from God. When I confess my sins, I try to force myself to look underneath the sin and see what kind of idol is driving me, what kind of motivation is driving me to want to do a particular thing. What's driving me? What's underneath it all? What do I really want? Some of the examples of that could be things like comfort or power or approval or influence or comfort. Uh, all of these things fall into our hearts in very powerful ways. As soon as our loyalty leads us to disobey God, we're in danger of making it an idol. Work, for example, is a commandment of God. But it can become an idol if it's pursued so exclusively that the responsibility to one's family are ignored. Preachers are one of the worst to break that commandment. Family is an institution of God himself, and it can become an idol. If one is so preoccupied with his own family that no one outside of your own family has ever cared for. Being well-liked, which is a perfectly legitimate hope, becomes an idol if the attachment means one never risks disapproval. Idols are inflated, suggesting that the idol will fulfill the promises for the good life. Idols tend to come in pairs. We have a nearby idol, which may be called a rising standard of living, but the faraway idol is the semi-conscious belief that material success will wipe away every tear and resolve every grief and wound of my heart. The most basic question which God poses to each of us, to every human heart, has something or someone beside Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's um, functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Let me repeat that. The fundamental basic question God poses to every human heart has something or someone besides Jesus, the Christ, taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. They are nothing less than false saviors. We enter into a covenantal relationship with whatever our idol is. And we say to our idol, our idol says to this, us, if you'll only do this, this, and this, then I will bless you. If you do not do this, this, and this, then I will curse you. My life's not worth living. So I pursue the idol. But let me, let me tell you, there's one thing you can count on for sure for the rest of your life, and it's not death and taxes. It is this. No idol will ever deliver what it promises. It will never deliver. It will always leave you feeling in bondage. Now, we often don't go deep enough with our idol structures, 
But I wanted to say one other thing about it because I think that's what happens here in the book of the First um, Samuel. The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many and a very rare sin only among primitive people. Rather, the only alternative to true, full faith in the living God is idolatry. We are created, we are natural-born, gifted worshipers. We're always going to look outside of ourselves for something to connect to, something to lead us, something to empower us, something to take care of us, something to protect us, something to give us meaning. We're always going to be looking for something, and what happens is we substitute something for Jesus, we attach our heart to it, and it will never deliver, it will never come through, it will never give you peace, it will never give you joy, It'll never give you happiness, but we keep doing it. All of us. All of us. The more I know about it, the more I see it in my own heart. And I'm repenting daily of that. So, what was wrong with their request? It sprang from an idolatrous motivation in the heart. And that idolatrous motivation led them to reject Yahweh from being their king. They looked around at the nations, and so in, in rejecting Yahweh, also rejecting Samuel, they had basically said, I'm tired of being an Israelite. <laughs> I want to go back to Egypt. You know, the leeks and onions and garlic. Now, I like leeks and onion and garlic, but not enough to go back to Egypt right but that's what they wanted to do and Israelites hearts never change and our hearts never change except through the work of the Holy Spirit and sanctification but the final result of this request would be that Israel instead of serving Yahweh would become slaves to the king and it is a reversal of the Sinai covenant Israel was heading back to Egypt to be ruled by a king with chariots and horses as the people wanted to, go, to return to Egypt in the wilderness days of Moses, so again in Samuel's time, they wanted to return to Egypt instead of accepting Samuel. Israel said, as it would say many centuries later, we have no king but Caesar. As the Lord directed Samuel, gave the people a detailed warning of what they could expect from their king that they were going to choose, informing them regarding the custom of the king. And so he gets into what the king will do. What can you expect out of the king you're choosing? And it's very interesting. Specifically, the king's justice would be like the justice of Samuel's sons in that both were intent on taking. Samuel's sons took bribes, and Samuel's account of the king emphasized that he would take six times as he warns them of the kind of king they're going to get is that king will do nothing but take for you. Six times he will take away. He will take away from you. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields. He will take your first fruits. He will ta he'll take everything. It's going to cost you everything to live under the kind of king you think you want, which is really being your own king. The king would take all of Israel's fruit, the fruit of their bodies, the fruit of their fields, the fruit of their vineyards. 
Samuel emphasized that the king would build up military power and take the best of the young men of Israel and for chariots and cavalry. In, in addition, the king would take uh, artisans from their peaceful pursuit and put them at work turning plowshares into swords. And as he continued taking food and animals and young men and young ladies, his court would become larger and more luxurious. Therefore, he would need an even larger supply of food, animals, young men, and women. Lastly, the king would take the tithe, and he'll end up taking everything. Now, here's the question. Even though God disapproves of this, even though God doesn't immediately bring judgment as he has often in the past. He says, give them what they want. They can have what they want. Give them the king, Samuel. Give them what they want. Why would God do that? Why does God sometimes just hand us over to our desires and our idols? Why would he do that? What is he up to? And what's the answer to that question? Well, if you know, you're a lot smarter than me, but I know a couple of things that it may suggest. Spite of this, the Lord did allow the project to go forward, and instead of standing with the old traditional order, Yahweh allowed Israel to move ahead toward monarchy. Though it was a sinful request, it accorded with his plan to set up a new thing in Israel, However, the sinful reasons for the destruction of the old world, the Lord intended to move ahead and not backward. However severe the birth pangs, Yahweh would ensure that barren, barren Israel give birth. He allowed them to have a king because it furthered his purposes and plans ultimately to have a king like David. But ultimately, the king like David would be David's son, not Solomon, but Jesus who is the son of David after the flesh. God is in process of, as I said forever, establishing his kingdom in this world by way of covenant. And later on, when we get in the life of David to the Davidic covenant, we'll see more and more how that's happening. But God allows them to have what they want to prepare them for something better. I hear these stories all the time, and I don't know whether they're absolutely true, but I've heard of people who said, I was dating this particular person and I thought they were the most wonderful person in the world and I thought it was God's will for me to marry this person and to be with this person and yet that person turned and rejected me and cast me aside and, and I thought I have totally missed, totally missed God's will here or something like that. And then lo and behold about you know, give the space of grief. I don't know how long it takes people to get over that. Maybe some people never do. But after a period of grief, God brings another person into someone's life, and you see how beautiful it can be if you just wait and trust in the Lord, and this person becomes everything to you that the other one was not. That's what's going to happen here. We're going to see Saul. and Saul has my sympathy with all of my heart. Saul was a tall, good-looking, athletic. He was quite capable. He was an amazing guy, but he's deeply flawed, deeply flawed. 
And I might, in process of going to the anointing of David, sort of talk about how Saul both succeeded and failed, but ultimately lost his mind. Ultimately lost his mind. But this is all to set up the monarchy in Israel, which would ultimately become a kingdom of Christ, which will ultimately come in all of its fullness at the end of time. But one thing I've noticed about the Old Testament is everything is so messy. There are no straight lines. They just go all over the place. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not people, all right, Lord, tell us what to do, and they go do it perfectly, and everything works out. No, God's the only one who can make a straight line with a crooked stick. We can't. But all we bring to the table most of the time is crooked stuff. And how God ever makes anything out of it is amazing. His sovereignty that way. And he's the only one that could bring order out of chaos. So he permits them to have what they want. I wonder if God ever gives us what we really want more than what we really know we should ask for. Perhaps he does as a way of disciplining us as our children to get us to see that that thing we wanted more than life itself would really only destroy us and everyone we love. But here's the truth of the passage today. The king thing in the hands of Israel, not allowing God to choose the king, not allowing God to raise up and anoint the person who would ultimately provide for them what they needed as a king to take this separated tribes who were basically independent units who were sometimes coming together for war, sometimes warring against each other, to have a central government to build a real kingdom, caused them to go through a lot of mess. And when he leaves it in the hands of the people, they destroy themselves. I don't know why we think we can do anything without Jesus and be successful. I don't know why we think that. It's just our hearts are so easily deceived. But the good news of the passage is, God did bring a king, and ultimately the king we need, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took all of our idols and idol worship upon himself and suffered the punishment of it, which is abandonment by God, God turning his back and leaving his people. Jesus took that for us. In those three hours of darkness upon the cross, he was abandoned in order to save us. And he gave us his perfect obedience. His sterling, beautiful, holy life is now mine as much as if I'd lived it myself. And years ago, gosh, that's a lot of years now, I preached a, a series of sermons on Jacob. And Jacob, you know, was a scam artist. He was a con man. No other way to say it. Jacob spent his whole life trying to manipulate and con people and work his way and his mother taught him how to do it she was really good at it he spent his whole life doing that all for nothing God wanted to give him what he worked so hard to steal from others if there is an idol in your heart that is sucking you dry that is taking your life away that has you in its grips you can repent. You can go to the Lord and say, forgive me for worshiping this thing I thought would bring me happiness. I love this too much. I want this too much. And I know I want it in a way disconnected from you. Please 
work in me a spirit of repentance. He'll do it. He will. And it will give you a sense of spiritual freedom you've never known. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we see as we look at the Bible, the people in the Bible are no different than us. They are so much like us, it's painful. And yet, we also see that you're the same. You're the same God who never changes, who never varies, who, who uh, cannot contradict himself, who has revealed himself to be who he is and what he desires of us. I pray for every heart in this building that we will constantly find ourselves returning to you over and over again to jump in the arms of Jesus, as it were, repenting of our stupidity, our hard-headedness, our stiff necks, and receive from you that beautiful, glorious grace. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who truly belong to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.